Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. So if you look at Galatians chapter 5, let me read some of these verses for you that we will be looking at over the course of the coming weeks. This is what I think God wants to bring about in our lives. In some sense, if we were to ask the question, what is God's will for our life? Ultimately, there are all kinds of things the scriptures speak about, but ultimately it's the change in character. The question is, well, what kind of character? Is it just a matter of becoming better people, more uh, obedient, or uh, reflecting a greater degree of goodness? Is that what the scripture is really concerned about? I think this passage, more more significantly than than any other passage, specifies and speaks to this core issue of our lives. What does it truly mean to be a follower of Messiah? What does it truly mean for the Lord to have taken hold of our lives and therefore is in the process of transforming it? What is the significance of that? And these passages jump out at me with this concern. He says in verse 13 of chapter 5, You, my brothers, were called. Here it is, the sense of why God has put his hand upon us. Why he has spoken to us, why he has singled us out, why he's chosen us to be among all the peoples of the world that would know him and embrace him and follow him. And he tells us, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, 
that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Messiah Yeshua have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. What I'd like to share with you, my thoughts about, to begin and to lay a foundation for a assessment of the fruit of the Spirit and what that fruit is all about, I like to think about what it means to walk in the Spirit. If you've noticed in these passages that I read seven times, the Holy Spirit is made reference to. The focus of this passage is not about behaving better. It's about the work of the Spirit in the life of our heart and soul. To be sure, over the centuries, that there's always been the talk of how it is that we are to experience the grace of God and how that grace of God is nurtured and enlarged in our lives. And so scripture talks about and throughout the ages, these disciplines have been uh, presented to believers over the centuries. One is prayer. The need for encountering God and communion with him in prayer. Another is the study of the word of God. These are described as means of grace oftentimes throughout history. Prayer, the study of the word of God. Obedience is oftentimes promoted as well. Enduring of suffering. Fellowship. With other believers. Those are referred to as the means of grace. That we would pray. That we would study God's word. That we'd be committed to obeying the Lord. Following him. That we would be in fellowship. With one another. And that we would be ones that learn. And endure suffering. But what Paul moves on from that. And those are foundation pieces. To a life of faith is that what is to come out of that? What is to manifest itself? And he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. But before he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he focuses our attention on the work of the Spirit of God in our life. Now take a look at this. In verse 13, as he begins, notice this is a letter to congregations. This is not a letter to a local assembly. So this is a letter that's being spread out over a region. The region is Galatia. Galatia is an area in what is today modern Turkey. Asia Minor is modern Turkey. And during the first and second missionary journeys of Paul, these were the areas that he had traveled through. The first with Barnabas. The second with Silas. And so he had established a number of congregations, and evidently other congregations have sprouted from it. He's writing to these believers. He's concerned for them. This is one of his sternest letters of all his letters. The greeting is very unique at the very beginning of this book. 
His challenge to its readers are scathing at the very beginning of this book. He's very much concerned that these believers are departing from his teaching. So in the first two chapters, he spends time defending his authority as the apostle to the Gentiles. And evidently his own calling and his own position that God had called him to was coming into question. So for two chapters, he spends the time demonstrating that he's one that needs to be listened to. One whose words need to be responded to. The second two chapters, or I should say the next set of chapters, chapters three and four, he focuses on his message. He defends his message that individuals have come to know the Lord, have come to salvation, not by the works of the law, but by the grace of God. And why this is so critical to Paul is because he wants to teach us that the way forward is the same way that we got started. That our walk with the Lord is not by law and legalistic mechanisms, but it's by sensitivity to and responsiveness to the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Just as we came to faith by the work of the Spirit, therefore we need to grow in that faith by the same work. And therefore, chapters 3 and 4, he wants to focus attention on his ministry, the work of the Spirit of God, and his message as he clarifies it. The last section that he deals with, chapters 5 and 6, he wants to emphasize what it means to walk in the Spirit of God. What does it look like? Now, in chapter 5, and this is where I want to focus, but putting it in context, if you look at verse 13, he tells us that the work of the Spirit of God brings us freedom. It brings us freedom in God. Now, what kind of freedom is he talking about? Some have criticized Paul because they have said that in his teachings he talks about God's grace and therefore we can live any way we want. If we're saved by grace and we're to grow by God's grace, well then we are not under some kind of legal code that we have to live in conformity to. But Paul is very clear. Look at verse 13. He says the kind of freedom he's talking about is not the kind of freedom that involves indulging the sinful nature. So when Paul talks about freedom, he's not talking about freedom by which you can do anything you want. Because there are things you cannot do with this kind of freedom. And this kind of freedom means you cannot indulge the sinful nature. Now that's complicated right there. What is a sinful nature? What is he talking about? Well, there are different ways to look at this. On the one hand, we as human beings have one nature. We have a human nature. And however we define that, it distinguishes us from animals and plants and the like. We have a human nature and therefore we are human beings. We're created in the image of God. God has a divine nature, which is unique and different from a human nature. But why things get complicated is because the second person of the triunity of God, God had done something to complicate things. He took on human form, something we would never imagine. How is it possible that God can become a man? After all, he's omnipotent and human beings are limited. After all, God is all knowledgeable and human beings are not. 
After all, God is infinite. He's everywhere. And human beings are not. So when God, by virtue of the second person of the triunity, the Messiah of Israel, the word is made flesh, all of a sudden a complication emerges. Something unique happens. And what results is Messiah, who has two natures. He has a human nature and he has divine nature. So because of his human nature, he can suffer and die for our sin. Because of his divine nature, he can know what's in every man's heart. Because of his human nature, he can fall asleep on the boat. But because of his divine nature, he can walk on the water. Because of his human nature, he can get tired and hungry. And therefore, at the woman at the well, he could tell the disciples, go into the town and get me something to eat because I'm hungry. But because of his divine nature, he never gets hungry and has no need of anything else. So things get a little complicated, a little fuzzy. And so it gets a little complicated for us in our understanding of the nature of Messiah. But in contradistinction to Messiah, we have one nature. But though we have one nature, Paul uses this word nature in a unique way. When he says we have a sinful nature, he doesn't mean the word nature in the same way that we speak of God as having divine nature and human beings having a human nature. What he really means by this word nature is there's an unlocking of a principle that has happened in our lives because of sin. Sin has unleashed a sin principle in our lives. So when he talks about a sinful nature, he's talking about the principle of sin acting upon our humanness and therefore leading us to make decisions that are contrary to the nature and will of God. So in some sense, there is a conflict within ourselves. There's a conflict because now that God has taken up residence in our hearts by virtue of his spirit, we have a longing for the things of the spirit. We didn't have that longing before we knew the Lord. Why? Because before we knew the Lord, we were dead in trespasses and sins. That is to say, we were dead to God. We were dead to the things of God. We were alienated from the grace and mercy of God. We were living apart from any sense or any ability to do what God would have us to do or to do anything that would please God. But now that we've come to know the Lord and the Spirit of God has taken up residence in our heart, now inside there's a desire to do something and to be responsive to the things of God for the first time in our lives. But that did not eradicate the fallenness of our human nature. It doesn't eradicate the propensity for sin. So Paul is telling us the grace of God that has worked in your life is not to be used. And the freedom that comes by now knowing God is not to be used to indulge the sinful tendencies in our lives. He refers to them as the sinful nature. So our freedom is not a freedom to do anything we want. It's a freedom To do the things God would have us to do. So he says, don't use your freedom. Do not presume upon the mercy and grace of God to do what you want. But to be mindful, to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading and guiding to do the things he would want. That's the kind of freedom that we have. The second thing he says, if you look at verse 13, he says this 
work of God's spirit, this freedom that finally has come to unleash us to obey God, is not to be used to indulge our sinful propensities and desires. But he says, it is rather to serve one another in love. Now that's really strange. Our freedom is a freedom to be a slave to others. That's the kind of freedom he's talking about. It's a freedom that requires us to serve others. Someone in Wednesday night, as we were talking about this, raised the passage in Philippians, where Paul says, consider others better than yourselves. The point of the passage is to say, we are to be servants of one another. So the kind of freedom is not to indulge the self or the sinful tendencies we might desire. He speaks of them as that but rather a freedom that seeks to do the things of God and seeks to serve others and to serve them in love and to serve them in kindness. Now, the word love is an interesting word because when we think of serving in love, we think of this idea of just of serving with a sense of emotional positiveness towards someone. But that's not what Paul means. He means to serve others through the sacrificing of what is most dear to us. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about your emotions and how you feel about serving. He's talking what you're willing to give up in your service for the benefit of others. So the freedom we have, and this is the paradox, is a freedom to really be a slave to one another. A kind of slavery that's willing to give up what is most dear to us for the benefit of others. And then he says, thirdly in this passage, the kind of freedom he's talking about is not only a freedom that does not indulge the sinful nature, and it is a freedom that serves others in love, but he then says it's a freedom that fulfills the law. Now, when we think of the law, we think, oh, oh, we're back to the 613 commandments that Messiah fulfilled in our behalf. But Paul is clear. The law about which he is speaking is that which sums up its entirety, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when he speaks of loving your neighbor as yourself, he doesn't mean that you do for others what you want to do for yourself. For example, I love chocolate. And so if I wanted to love somebody as I love myself, I'd give them tons of chocolate. But what if that person doesn't like chocolate? Am I loving that person as I love myself just simply because I'm doing for them what I would do for myself? That's not what Paul means. When he says to love someone as you would love yourself, he means to love others with a sense of benefiting them as they would desire to be benefited. That's what it means to love yourself. You're benefiting yourself. It doesn't have to do with the specific thing you do for yourself because it's all different for all of us. I love rock and roll. Some people will probably not come back to this service anymore because, you know, you love rock and roll. You're supposed to burn those albums. I did do that years ago. And then I went out and bought them all again. But somebody else, like my sailing buddy, I mean, he'll listen to rock and roll, but, and he drives me crazy because when I get into the car and we're driving with him, he's got the classical station on. And he's listening to classical stuff. Now, it's not like I, don't, I have something against classical music, but how do you listen to classical music in a car? You know, you've got to have the windows down, you're going 80 miles, and you're listening to violins. I don't get that. But that's what he's into. 
So if it was his birthday, I said, I'm going to love him as myself, and I'm going to buy him, you know, a whole collection of Dylan albums or something like that. I would be loving him as I love myself because that's what I'd want him to give me, but that's not what he wants. He wants Beethoven stuff. Actually, one day when we were driving from Maryland all the way up to Massachusetts, he was into bird calls. You know, he's just listening and he puts a tape in and it's like, this is now the red-tailed cockatoo. I said, Brian, what the, what are you doing? You know, I said, get that out of there. That's my friend, Brian, you know. So if I'm to love him as I would love myself, I have to do for him what is beneficial to him. That's what Messiah is saying. Oh, that's what Paul is writing. So the kind of freedom he's talking about is a freedom that doesn't indulge what we might otherwise like to indulge. It's a kind of freedom that is servant-natured. As Messiah himself said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life in love, a ransom for many. And with that as a backdrop, he now specifies what this freedom looks like. Now, we're running out of time, but I want to show you just a couple of things. If you look at these passages, there's three sections to it in verses 16 through 25. And I just want to say a couple of things. The first section is found in verses 16 through 18. And what does he tell us there? He tells us we are in a war. We're in a conflict. Look what he says. The sinful nature, the propensity to do the bad things that we are told our freedom is not to be used to do. He says the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. Here it is. They are in conflict with each other. So here's the big question. It's a very practical question. Are you in conflict with yourself? Now, if you say no, well, then you don't have the work of the Spirit in your life, according to Paul. See, we always hear that if the Spirit of God is alive in your heart, everything should be going well. Everything should be peaceful. Everything should be stable. Everything should be going smoothly. But Paul just told us, that if the Spirit of God, seven times he mentions the Holy Spirit, and he speaks about the Holy Spirit leading you, take a look at it, walking with the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, staying in step with the Spirit. If the Spirit of God is alive in you and you are walking in the Spirit, you are led by the Spirit, you're keeping in step by the Spirit, there ought to be an incredible conflict going on in your life. Because that's what Paul says. The Spirit's going to war with your sinful nature, and your sinful nature has not been eradicated. So if you're not struggling over issues in your life, you don't have the work of the Spirit of God in your heart. That's what Paul is saying. If you do have a conflict, then we need to address the conflict. And that's the way war is. As I'm not really a student of war. But Mary Lou will tell you, she doesn't like to watch the movies and films I watch because oftentimes they deal with war. So I used to have all the Time Life Warner books on the Civil War. You know, I had that whole thing. And there was a time I was so into the Civil War that there was hardly a book out that I had not read on the Civil War. And I had read that of all matters of history, more books are published on the Civil War each year than any other 
any other historical moment. So not everybody's into that, but, but I am. And when I think of the battles that were fought during the Civil War and where they were fought, the thing that makes those battles important is the terrain upon which the battle was fought. So one of the earliest battles in the Civil War was the battle on the peninsula. That is in Virginia, the eastern side of Virginia. The north landed all their troops by boat on the shore, and they marched their troops right across the peninsula inland. Now, why was that important? It's important because they were headed toward Richmond. And if Richmond fell, the war was over. The Union had like 120,000 troops. The Confederates had like 25,000, 30,000 to defend the city. They had a call for Stonewall Jackson's troops that were in the Shenandoah to come down. He makes it in the very last minutes, which enlarges their forces to about 40,000. They were still outnumbered three to one. But the general on the northern side, he was more concerned about having a nice-looking army than an effective army. He liked them when they were marching all nice and clean with their uniforms, everything polished and their guns, you know, already. And he loved looking at them. He just didn't want to get them dirty. And so he just did not want to put them in a war, into battle. These are beautiful-looking troops, you know. You don't want to get them messed up. So... He would say, okay, do I have to do this? And so he'd throw in a few troops. He'd throw in a few troops. The Confederates, they were fighting for their lives. And they knew that they were going to get their hands dirty. So little by little, they just put as many troops as they could. And they pushed the Union troops, even though three to one, right off the peninsula. But what makes that conflict so important was the terrain upon which it was fought. In that very f- short moment, the Union could have ended the Civil War and 600,000 deaths would not have been spent over the next five years. The largest number of American casualties of all their wars combined, including Vietnam. World War I, World War II, more American lives were lost in the Civil War. Of course, you had them on both sides. But think about that. Wars are fought, significant battles are fought in the most important places. There's a battle going on in your heart. There's a battle going on in your innermost being. It's an important place. Because as Paul said, as we just read, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that is like scary stuff, isn't it? I mean, that's really scary. I mean, we don't have to pay attention to it. Then it's not so scary. It's like going to the doctor. You got cancer. I'm not going there again. I'm not paying any attention to that. But that's not the only place things like that are said that are very disturbing to me. And I hope this disturbing to you. But in the book of Hebrews, it says, without holiness, no one will see the kingdom of God. What is holiness? Where is it? It's in you. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. So are you holy? Are we characterized by holiness? So now you ask, how do we know if we're holy? Fruit of the Spirit. Are you characterized by love? Characterized by patience? Characterized by gentleness? And all the rest of them. If you are, there should be a battle. And you should be characterized by that because only such individuals who are so characterized are entering the kingdom of heaven. It isn't those that work hard at it. It's those that are characterized by it. It isn't those who desire it. 
It's those who are characterized by it, Paul says. And when you look at the works of the flesh, those are scary stuff. They're scary stuff because they're not just things of which we do. They also are about attitudes with which we tolerate. So take a look at this because this is why I say this portion of scripture I think is so critical. If we're going to be the kinds of men and women God and young people that God wants us to be. And why he saved us. In other words, he didn't just save us to get us to heaven. I'll never forget years ago, I was listening to Billy Graham. He said, if God saved you to bring you to heaven, he'd arm every evangelist with a 32. And every time you came up and said, I'll invite the Lord to my life, great, another one going to heaven, bang. (laughs) Billy Graham made up that thing. I can't take credit for that. I didn't know he was such a funny guy. That's what my father said of me once when he heard me speak. But, so if God didn't save us to get to heaven, what did he save us for? And you know what those old preachers used to say? He saved us to get heaven into us. And if heaven is into us, our destiny is to be there, where heaven comes from. So what's God's purpose? This is what he told us. He called us to freedom. What does freedom mean? It means the work of the Holy Spirit that leads us to be servants of others, loving servants of others, not indulging in the sinful nature that we're in battle with. That's why he saved you and me. And that's why he can say, without this, we're not headed to heaven. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's why Yeshua said, it's not enough to say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? He'll say, depart from me. The ones he'll welcome into my kingdom are those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is the will of the Father who is in heaven? He's not just talking about, should I get a job here? Should I go to school there? He's not talking about that. The will of God who is in heaven is that the Spirit of God would have control of your life. That he'd have control of your character. That he'd have control of who you are, ultimately. Because he's conforming us into the image of his son. And if he's conforming us into the image of his son, what is the image of his son? It's the spirit of God. When we see, this, when we see Messiah, what do we see? We see the spirit of God working through him. In fact, look at the fruit of the Spirit. I asked this on Wednesday night. What is the fruit of the Spirit? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Think about this. What is the fruit of the Spirit? It's not a what. It's a who. It's Yeshua. That's what he's talking about. I mean, if we're talking the fruit of the Spirit is love, who is the one that manifested all of love? It's Messiah. Who is the one who manifested all patience, all gentleness, all meekness, all self-control? It's Messiah. What is he talking about? He's talking about Messiah should be showing up in our lives. And that's what Paul is so concerned about. And he won't show up by legalistic entanglements. He shows up when we are led by the Spirit of God. When we are following him. When we are committed to to him, when we are led by him. Notice, he didn't say anything about obey this commandment or that commandment. I'm not saying we, shouldn't be dis- we should be disobedient. I'm not saying that. It's one of the means of grace, obedience. But what Paul is talking about is the result of obedience comes by the work of the Spirit of God. So there's a big question 
that we have to all ask ourselves, are we in conflict? Are we in a battle or are we capitulating to our sinful nature and raising the white flag and simply saying, hey, that's just the way I am. You know, you don't like it. It's too bad. Or are we saying, God, you need to do a work in my heart and in my life that will transform me radically and transform me, form me positively. This is really about the work of holiness in our lives. Now, I said before, I think as I'm getting older, I don't know, I'm sort of reverting back to many of those early years in my life when I first became a believer. And I was in a holiness church, you know. And I told you, they told me what holiness was. They had a manual this thick, hard covered, you know. And they said, this is what it looks like. And you know, I love God so much. I'll do it. You know, no more going to movies. Oh, man, I can't go to a book. Okay. I, I, Lord, I'll do it. I signed my name in this church. I'll do what it says. They say I can't go to movies. I'm not going. You know, they say I can no longer gamble, play cards. I didn't have a whole big gambling streak in me. You know, 17, you know, maybe we played for pennies or, you know, bubble gum or something. But okay, we'll play cards, you know. <laughs> I wasn't much of a swimmer. I'm not into pools anyway. So, okay, no mixed bathing, you know. I mean, all of you know those things. Some of you know those things, right? No more smoking. I never smoked anyway, so that was not a big deal. I could sign, you know. There are only a few things that I said, you know. Fortunately, listening to rock music wasn't on one of those things, you know. But, But I was told I should do otherwise. But I loved God. I wanted to do what God wanted me to do. This is what they were telling me God wanted me to do. Okay. As I got older, I realized that's not what it means. And then I went and bought all my stuff. (laughs) But that's not what it means. But it certainly does mean holiness is to show up. Now, we're running much later than I really wanted to. But let me encourage you to do this before next week. I want you to read Isaiah chapter 6. Because in Isaiah chapter 6, you've got the seraphim around the throne of God. And what do they say about God? Love, love, love. (laughs) They say peace, peace, peace. They say infinity, infinity, infinity. (laughs) They say omnipotence, omnipotence, omnipotence. No, they say holy, holy, holy. Isn't that the... And then what does Isaiah say? Whoa, I am undone. Because without holiness, I can't stand the presence of God. Right? It's the Hebrew says that. God has to do something for us we cannot do for ourselves that results in something emerging within us and out from us that is delightful to him and a blessing to others. Read and reread and read again these passages. Ask yourself, Some very hard questions. Remember what I said about James? We're to look in the mirror and ask ourselves. Don't look at someone else and tell them anything. Look in the mirror and ask yourself, am I a person that is engaged in sexual immorality? Am I a person engaged in impurity, idolatry, witchcraft? Many of us will say, no, I'm not doing that, but let me ask you this. Ask yourself. Is there hatred in my heart? Is there someone that I hate? Is there discord in your heart? 
and a desire to bring divisiveness, division, and disunity and disharmony. It's the work of the flesh. He says, are you jealous? Do you exhibit fits of rage? Do you have selfish ambition rather than a concern for others? Do you bring about dissension? Do you bring about factions? Are you envious of someone? <laughs> you know, Look in the mirror and ask the hard things that Paul is writing us to look at. If you see any of it, it is the sinful nature. That is not pleasing to God. And it is not beneficial to others. But if you can look in the mirror and see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, well, then the Spirit of God has showed up and you've yielded to him that those things can be seen. This is a day-by-day battle that is never won until we're in heaven. But may it be a battle and not a surrender to the works of the flesh. There's no step, three easy steps to the fruit of the Spirit. But we're to keep in step, we're to walk with him, we're to be led by him. By the way, if the Spirit of God is in your heart, the fruit of the Spirit is there. Because he is there. It's him, right? So it's there. Problem is you need to grow into them. And you need to allow God to grow it in you. And that takes time. So let me just close with this illustration. I'm sorry. This illustration. Our first dog was our dog Rahab. She was a female. We didn't know what she'd be like in the the community. So we named her Rahab. And Rahab was a Hungarian Vizsla, which is one of the most beautiful breeds. And those that have them are very fortunate. (laughs) And when we got this dog, you know, we went to the pet store. We went buying a typewriter. But as I walked by the pet store and I saw this dog in the window, I said, Mary, let's get this dog. We were like married a year or something. So let's get this dog. And she said, oh, I don't want a dog. I can't do it with dogs. Now she's a dog, dog, lover, lover, lover. But so we said, well, let's just go in and see. Let's just go in and see. So we go in. I said, come on, let's go see. So we go in there. We sit down in one of these cage areas, you know, and they bring the dog in. It's like, I'm in love, man. I'm, forget about it. I want this dog. And the dog starts chewing on Mary Lou's uh, purse or whatever. He says, look, she's, he's just, she's destroying my stuff. I said, no, 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 she's just chewing. She loves you. Look, she's just, she's chewing you. <laughs> and, then, and look how big this dog's going to get. Do you see the size of those paws? They're like labyrinth, you know, they're giant paws. They're not that big, you know. And the ears were already on the ground, you know. And I said, but here's the thing, Mary Lou, it's little now as it grows, you know, you won't even know how big it gets because you'll be so used to the gradual thing. You know, well, we left without Rahab until the next day when I called, Ma- and I'll confess, I called Mary Lou and I said, you know, I've really been praying about this. <laughs> and she, I said, God told me we should get this dog. So listen, those of you who keep telling me God's telling you stuff and I say, forget about it. I've been there. So, you know. I said, the Lord is saying, she goes, go ahead, go get the dog. You know? So I get the dog. But here's the thing. 
that dog grew into its paws. The paws were big. Mary Lou was right. I just didn't want to say it was big. But the paws never grew. It always was big. But then when it got bigger, the the paws looked smaller. Or the ears were always long. She was always stepping on it and falling over. It was so fun. But she had these beautiful ears. But the ears never grew. She grew, but the ears stayed the same, so they looked smaller. That's what it means to grow in grace. See, the fruit of the Spirit's there. Just like the ears were full grown and the paws are full grown, the, spirit of, the fruit of the Spirit is there in you. You have to grow into it. You have to grow up into it. That takes time. That takes devotion to it. That takes flubbing and tripping and falling and being a little clumsy with it. But by the time you get further on in your life, you shouldn't be so clumsy anymore. If you've walked with the Lord 30, 40 years, the fruit of the Spirit should be so evident that people are saying, I can't wait to get up to this guy or gal because this person is such a wonderful person to be around. I can understand if you're newly in this and you're trying to get through some stuff and there's all kinds of challenges in your life. But if you've been walking with the Lord 20, 30 years, come on, it's time to grow up and get into your ears. And get in your paws and start getting into the fruit of the Spirit and seeing it blossom and grow and should be a big deal. And if it's not, it's because you've given up on the battle. And if you've given up on the battle, woe is you. Battles are hard. Scars run deep. Danger is present. But if you run from the battle, you'll run from the rewards. If you run from the battle... You'll fail to see God do something in you that will be utterly miraculous and transforming in nature. So Paul is very much concerned for us. And he's telling us, if the work of the Spirit's alive, this is what you should be looking like. And this is what you should be fighting over. And this is what you should be dedicated to see emerge in your life. There's no tricks to it. There's no easy steps to it. It's a matter of, as Paul says, in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this morning. We're thankful, Father, for the goodness and kindness that dwells within you. Thank you for your grace that has brought us unto yourself. And now, Father, help us to learn from your word Help us to be a congregation that moves forward in holiness as it genuinely needs to be seen, not in legalistic practices that are helpful and necessary, but may we exhibit the very character of Messiah, the very fruit of the Spirit. Help us to wage this war with all the might within us. Help us to wage this war dependent upon the strength that only comes from you. And so, Father, we pray that we then might be truly a holy priest, a holy people, a royal priesthood, children of the King who is holy, holy, holy. Help us to be that, we pray. And, Father, now as we receive the gifts that you've placed on each and every person's heart to give, 
We give those gifts freely and unto you. Help the leadership team here at Beth Ariel to be good stewards of what you entrust to us. That our needs might be met and that our ministry might flourish. We give, Lord, because you have given so much to us. We pray this in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.